0: Welcome to the Ninja Lane Podcast. In this episode, we talk about Sandy Bridge, architecture, overclocking, and that nasty recall. Ninja Lane Hardware Bot takes eighth place in Battlefield Bad Company 2.
1: Hey, Dennis, you know, lately I've been talking to you quite a bit about purchasing a new PC, and I've been looking a lot at the i7 processors. Well, I went out this week to look at Sandy Bridge in the news, and I noticed there's a dramatic difference in price and also a big jump in the numbering system. Can you tell me what's new with Sandy Bridge that causes the change?
0: Well, I can't really tell you what changes in Sandy Bridge without addressing where it came from. Okay. So we have the the Linfield and then Halem lines, which is 1156 and 1366. Those were, you know, the 875, the 750, and then the 920, 950s, and the 980s. Okay. Those are all kind of this old architecture. Well, Sandy Bridge starts out at the, you know, in these 2000 range and has an 1155 pin socket. Mm-hmm. And is completely different. You know, they re-architected everything. They kind of got rid of a lot of the old Pentium 4 stuff that actually created the Linfield and the Halem lines. And just kind of, you know, looked at it from a whole new perspective.
1: So it sounds like you're going to have to buy a new motherboard. There's clearly not a straight upgrade path.
0: No, nope, there's not. You know, the 1155, it's only one pin difference, but the architecture of the processor dictates that the interaction to the processor changes, the PCI express lanes change to a certain degree, the, the memory interaction changes, so when they re- release this new chip, it's the same size as a Linfield, but the knocks are in the different spots. so they won't actually interchange on a P55 or the 6-series motherboards.
1: So if the hardware is different, how does that affect uh, overclocking and performance?
0: It's kind of just a change, really. The, the Sandy Bridge has been rumored to run 5 gigahertz on air, and the testing in the lab here has proven that to actually be the case. But it changes the way that it does overclock.
1: Okay. So I know you've had some experience with a couple of different boards. So what kind of board should we be looking for? What, what works for overclocking?
0: Well, from an overclocking standpoint, it's the same rules as before. You know, you want to go after the enthusiast-level motherboard, the ones that are going to have, you know, these insanely huge PMWs, and, you know, they're always going to have extra miscellaneous parts on board, you know, like RAID controllers and SATA-6 and all this other stuff that, you know, that just kind of makes them enthusiast-level boards and warrants the the additional cost. But the thing you get with that is an enhanced BIOS. For instance... One of the, the first Sandy Bridge motherboards I reviewed was from Foxconn. It was the P67AS. It was really kind of an OEM board with some overclocking features on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a reason that why Foxconn did that. But this is kind of the the mainstream board that they wanted to send out. And it's going to be, you know, for the masses, basically. I th- believe it's even the cheapest P67 you can buy. Okay. Within this BIOS, there isn't, there's a limit. I have a 2600K, which is this unlocked sandy bridge processor Mm -hmm. put that on there and the multipliers actually stop before i could actually limit or find the limit of the of the cpu itself okay i change over to a gigabyte ud7 which is the highest end p67 that that they produce i was able to actually extend the limit of the cpu beyond what it could support it was uh you know, 5 gigahertz plus, uh, memory controllers could be changed, or memory speeds could be changed, timings, just about everything, voltages and whatnot. You know, all those controls were actually in the Foxconn board, but they didn't stick. For some reason, there was something wrong with the BIOS. From what I found, it was just kind of, it was limited.
1: So at least in this case, uh, the money is going to get you the premium overclocking board like you'd expect. But how is the Sandy Bridge overclocked?
0: With Sandy Bridge, you have to rethink how you overclock the system. With previous Linfield and the Halem processors, it's all based on the base clock. You know, a lot of times you couldn't change the multiplier. You know, some of the K processors you could. But the base clock, you know, you saw 200 megahertz base clocks, 150 megahertz base clocks. Mm -hmm. And that system clock would change the CPU frequency, and it would also change the memory frequency and uh, several other clocks within the system. With Sandy Bridge... This base clock got their micro adjustments. So really, the the highest that you would possibly be able to go is 110 on the base clock, which seems outrageous considering where we came from.
1: Right.
0: The difference is the processor allows you to change the multiplier considerably. In a lot of cases, the the 2600K starts out at 34x on the on the CPU multiplier. Depending on what board you pick, it might go up to 59, 57x, which given a 100 megahertz base clock, you know, the quick math is going to be 5.7 gigahertz. It's actually pretty fast. That is pretty fast. Now, the system clock is where the tweaking comes in. And this is the clock that controls, you know, and traditionally it's the memory clock. Now this system clock multiplies by the base clock and it will change the memory frequency. So if you have good quality memory, you can increase your system clock and adjust the base clock. And it's going to, you know, you're going to be overclocking memory, but in turn, it also overclocks the CPU slightly. At 48x, you could actually be running at 5.2 gigahertz, depending on what your base clock is set at. These micro adjustments are multiplied by the really high multiplier on the Sandy Bridge processor.
1: So it sounds like, from the overclocking strategy, that memory selection is going to be very critical on Sandy Bridge.
0: It is. Memory has always been important when you're overclocking. You know, you're going to be able to get lower latencies to really speed up the interaction. You know, if you're running a 3D Vantage benchmark, you're going to want to have the highest CPU score you can because it's going to increase your your 3D score. Right. Well, on Sandy Bridge, with the system clock running as high as, you know, by default at 2133, you're going to want to have the highest frequency memory you can with the lowest latencies to be able to tweak and tune the system because you're going to be running this system clock a little bit lower when you're adjusting the base clock. Okay. And all that interaction you're going to be, you know, reaching the limit of your memory at a lower system clock at, you know, it's it's pretty complicated to explain, but the key will be memory. So, if you want to have the best possible performance, you're going to want to pick the best memory you can for the money.
1: So, not just the memory, but clearly board selection is critical also. Because it sounds like if you buy at least an entry level processor, you're going to be very restricted in your performance settings.
0: That is true. There, I've only talked about the K-series processors on the Sandy Bridge side. There's a whole line of Sandy Bridges that don't have, the, well, the, the multiplier is fixed. So right. the only adjustments you're going to be able to make are with these micro adjustments on the base clock and the system clock, which is their, your memory. <laughs> memory selection is very important you're going to have the the lowest latency memory modules at the highest speed you can get. Now, you're not going to be able to get a 2100 frequency memory module at a CAS 7 at a reasonable price. Yeah. So what you're going to want to get is a CAS 7 with re, uh, reasonable voltage settings and maybe a lower speed because when you start tweaking the system, you're going to be in between some of those multipliers. So you'll be able to overclock the memory and the system and probably get better scores than somebody that spent more money on high-frequency memory that has less, you know, Cas9 timings.
1: Well, Dennis, you know, you can't talk about Sandy Bridge without talking about all of the recall hype that's been in the media lately. Can you tell me what's really going on with Sandy Bridge?
0: Well, the the recall affects the 6-series chipset, so that's going to be the P67 and the H67. It was one thing that Intel discovered in their labs during their long-term testing, And they they determined that the SATA-2 ports would degrade performance over time.
1: So what exactly is affected?
0: It's primarily just the SATA-2 ports. They say that the performance will degrade over time given normal use. There's a 5% failure rate over three years, which is actually well beyond the, the lifespan of many of the motherboards that you're going to be buying.
1: So, it sounds like a pretty easy workaround. Just don't it, use the slots if you're affected.
0: <laughs> you know, it, it's that simple, really. On the, the 6 Series chipset, you have four SATA 2 ports, and then the chipset even comes with two SATA 3 ports. Now, a typical system builder it's going to have an optical drive and a single hard drive.
1: Right.
0: You can totally avoid the SATA 2 ports and avoid the, the flaw completely by plugging into the SATA 3 ports.
1: And there's no performance hit?
0: No performance hit, and in some cases, it's going to be a performance gain. But, you know, as OEMs building a system, they're going to be buying the cheap components, so they'll buy SATA 2 optical drives and SATA 2 hard drives, and they're going to be plugging those into the ports that actually match whatever they bought.
1: Makes sense.
0: And that's really where the biggest fear that Intel had was, was with these system builders that are putting these these massive systems together. You know, the biggest one would be like laptops and some of these um, small form factor media PCs and stuff like that.
1: So I know you've got some boards, and it was possible for quite a while to purchase an OEM system or a Sandy Bridge board on the open market. Uh, What happens if you got one of those?
0: Well, a lot of the big manufacturers, MSI and Gigabyte, namely, have issued recall notices, you know, basically press releases saying that if you've bought one of their products, they're going to support you. In some cases, you have to sign up for a certificate, and then when there's a replacement available, you send in your old board, they'll send you a new board. It's just direct swap in other cases they've suggested that if you've just recently bought it you know send it back to where you bought it and say hey this is flawed intel says it's flawed we want want our money back within 30 days a lot of times you can return for free so if you can afford it that would be the way to go
1: so it sounds like at least for the short run there's no competition but i know in april we're rumored to get bulldozer and shortly after that ivor bridge so I guess the real question as I'm out shopping is, should you wait?
0: <laughs> My expert opinion would be yes. The reason for that is, you know, right now, as it stands, you can't buy a P67 or H67 motherboard. The, all the stocks have been pulled from uh, Newegg and other, other vendors, for that matter. Now, if you bought one already, then, you know, you're sitting pretty. You just kind of do the workaround, and if you have a problem, you send it back and you get an RMA. Mm-hmm. You know, the other reason for waiting is, you know, we're going to have at least a three-month lag before new boards are going to be available. And by then, you know, that's March-April time frame. That's when Bulldozer is rumored to come out, as you mentioned. Ivy Bridge, which is the replacement for Sandy Bridge, or the upgrade, if you will, it's a 22 nanometer part, I believe, that's rumored to come out around Computex, which is June. So, you know, that's three months after, you know, boards are going to be available. So there's going to be a very narrow window... That you'll be able to buy these inexpensive sandy bridges that have been sitting on on store shelves. But you know, if you could, if you've waited this long, you might as well wait a f- few months more and get the next best thing.
1: Dennis, I know recently there was a major milestone for the hardware bot team. Can you tell us about it?
0: Well, we are ranked 8th out of overclocking sites in the U.S.
1: That's impressive.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's actually a big milestone because we finally plast Bleeding Edge, which is one of the other U.S.-based teams. We were stuck behind them for several several months, actually. It was kind of harsh.
1: Bleeding Edge? Why does that name sound so familiar?
0: Well, aside from being behind them for so long, we had a team member from there come over and join the Ninja Lane team for a little while. We did some benching. Then he left to go join that team again, and now we've actually passed them. So it's kind of a woohoo. hoo
1: So when someone leaves the team, what kind of impact does that have on your score?
0: When they leave, they take all their points with them. So, you know, if they've contributed 200 points, then, you know, we're down 200 points as a team. You know, Hardware Bot is a team-focused event, so, you know, teamwork counts.
1: Okay, so your eighth place, how many points is it going to take to take number seven? Is that even possible?
0: Number seven is Within Our Grasp. Let's see, quick calculation, we have about 130 points to take over 7th place, which is also significant because it's the Asus Republica Gamer Team. Wow. You know, it's headlined by an overclocker who's relatively local. He's in northern Idaho, so as you know, Ninja Lane is an Idaho-based website. Being able to overtake some of the team members from the local area is kind of nice.
1: Well, on ASUS, that's a, that's a factory-sponsored team, right? At least to some extent.
0: To some extent, yes. You know, I, I don't think ASUS is going to admit that, but we kind of know that there's a little bit going <laughs> on there.
1: But there's a big difference in team size, too, isn't there?
0: There is. We NinjaLane is actually considerably smaller than that team. However, we have more active members, so, so we don't have to have as many points per person because they all add up. Uh, the ASUS team, there's one person that has a lot of points and several people that have just a few points here and there.
1: On that note, I noticed that in the forum you posted an emergency overclocking session recently. Is that <laughs> is that based on the hardware bot?
0: Yes, it is. I was doing some uh, phase change testing, you know, grabbing some old gear out of the closet. And I had a, a 5000 plus black edition, which is an AMD processor. is unlocked. And I sat down to overclock it on one of my old DFI boards, which turns out my chip was junk. But when I was <laughs> doing searches on hardware bot to find you know, what scores I needed to have to get points. The first one that came up was a 5,000 B plus. And I'm thinking, okay, B, black edition. Okay, that's got to be it. I'm going in this section and there was really only one person that had actually benched. So there was gold cups everywhere and there was a relatively low score. So I'm like, you know, I could take this. So I sat down and did all my benches, found that I needed to have a certain amount to get, you know, gold in each section. Maxed that out and... That night, I went and submitted my scores. Next day, the person who who I beat had actually commented on one of my posts saying, um, this is a black edition. This is a different section. I'm like, oh, oh no. So I, I kind of did a I did a double take. You know, mistakes happen every once in a while. So I went and looked, and sure enough, there actually is a 5,000-plus black edition. There's 30 or 40 scores, several points available, but I wasn't even on the map.
1: Oh, no. The
0: processor was junk. So <laughs> at that point, I'm like... It's kind of on, you know, he actually called me out on this and I'm thinking, I'll just go out and buy a 5,000 B plus and rebench it and see what I can do. Found one for like, I think $50 on some retail sites, brand new, shows up, I go and pull the, the DFI board out again. So I sat down did all my benches, basically posted a score just slightly above what was there so that I got all the golds. And at that point I was really satisfied. I figured, well, you know, this is a off the wall sort of chip. So chances are he may not have it anymore, right? Three months pass, you know, I have the golds. And then all of a sudden, I get notification on HardwareBot saying that all my golds went down to silver, which means that I got bumped down to second place. I'm like, what the heck? turns out that the guy that I took the golds from had noticed that and went and rebenched, And he went all out. He actually hooked up LN2 and been able to, you know, put slightly higher scores than me, but at a lower clock speed, which was really kind of weird. So he did a lot with system tuning. So he spent a lot of time on this. I got more in my chip so I'm just gonna I'm gonna make
1: another
0: <laughs> I'm gonna make another run so I went all out I went and pulled uh, an emergency overclocking session posted it in the forum I went and set up a live stream fired up everything I even had my old profile set up and CMOS reloaded so I went and loaded that up and just started over where I was and in some benches I was actually able to beat them really quite easy just because it was a faster chip and in other ones I had to sit down and start tuning quite a bit so you know there was some work I had to actually do. But I was able to do this on water, but I was able to reclaim all of my golds. The last score that I posted on HardwareBot was for CPU-Z, which in that I said, okay, pick and backstory located here. And I put a, a link back to the to the forum thread. The next day, turns out that the guy that I beat was being a really good sport and said, hey, good job. You know, my chip is junk and it looks like the only thing that I could beat you on is the W-Prime 1024. But... He wasn't going to pour LN2 for 12 minutes just to try it. You know, this is actually a nice success story.
1: Deal. Now, is that the same session that you did live?
0: I did do that one live, yes. I had uh, several people from the forums actually tuned in, and, you know, I bench late at night here in the U.S., so the guys in Europe actually are just kind of getting up and checking out stuff. So I had a couple of guys actually log in and ask me what I was doing. And I try to mix it up a bit when I'm doing the live streams where... I had the camera on the overall so they can see how I put the system together. And then as I start doing the overclocking, I'll put the camera in front to give a screen cam so that people can see what it is I'm changing in the BIOS. Wow,
1: that's handy.
0: Yeah, so kind of makes it easy.
1: Definitely a good story. Any fun stories on what the rest of the team's up to? What's coming up?
0: Well, Gulf Town is actually the big story right now. I mean, it's, it's for the X58. It's the six-core hyper-threaded upgrade to the Nehalem line. And I have one coming in, and I believe a couple of other team members have them as well. So we're going to be making some Gulf Town runs and hopefully take uh, a lot of 3D points. What we really need to have is some more people joining up. We can help them out with their overclocking or, you know, if they're team converts, that's fine. That's actually the fastest way to, to grow in the ranks. So I've been planning a LAN party. I'm gonna invite some friends over, and everyone's wanting to play Battlefield Bad Company Two. So, oh yeah, <laughs> I dusted it off and installed the game, and hopped online to you know kind of get refamiliarized with the game. And I cannot get any points. I keep getting <laughs> my ass handed to me. I'm like, I run around, I'm getting fragged, and it's like I can't even see anybody. So, I know that you play Battlefield quite a lot. I do. What? Uh, how do you get? How do you score?
1: The biggest appeal to me. Of the battlefield franchise is really the teamwork aspect Uh, as you know i've been a pretty serious gamer for a long time including some sponsorships for some pretty twitchy games but one thing i've noticed as i've gotten a little bit older and other things have taken away my time is games that focus on teamwork like battlefield bad company 2 really do appeal to a lot of support roles and a lot of teamwork aspects that i find very appealing
0: now the the teamwork aspect you know it's it's kind of set up like the original team games where you have different classes, right? That's so correct.
1: So
0: what, uh, what kind of classes do we have in Battlefield Bad Company?
1: Well, you've got a handful of classes, and they're all kind of what you'd expect. You've got you know, an assault character, a medic, the engineer, which fulfills sort of a tank, anti-tank role, sniper. I think I've got everybody there. And each one really <laughs> supports a different style of play. And as an example, the assault's kind of your generic guy, but he has a teamwork element where he drops the ammunition, which allows the players to, of course, continue to use their weapons longer. Huh. And the medic drops a medic pack, which, of course, heals the folks around and can also take a dead player and return him, for a short period of time back to active play by uh, using the old shock paddles on them, which yeah. <laughs> we've seen in a few different games.
0: Yeah, and that, uh, that goes along with that 10-second or 5-second delay after you get killed or whatever
1: yeah exactly and it's kind of nice because you can call for a medic even when you're wounded oh wow the engineer in addition to being able to fulfill the anti-tank role can repair not just the tanks but some of the place guns to keep those alive when they're being damaged oh, wow. uh, that's kind of a neat aspect and i like that in addition to direct attacks you can lay mines and that sort of thing so even if you're maybe not in the active firefight you can dig in in an area where some armor might attack your flag so that's kind of nice oh well Uh, the medic is probably my favorite role overall but recently i've been finding a lot of success playing a sniper never thought i'd enjoy playing a sniper in a game because it just really is so reflex driven but in battlefield i find that the sniper is maybe the easiest support role that there is
0: now I'm mostly a first person shooter game and I'm kinda of like the Twitch gamer, so you know, I'd be playing Quake or Unreal Tournament. Right. So I always pick the, the assault guy because that seems to match the type of gameplay that I like. Mm-hmm. Now with a sniper, played that a few times, but you know, to really be an effective sniper you have to dig in, you have to find cover and, and basically keep a, an eye on the on the field. Right. Now, is there a benefit to doing that?
1: You definitely have to have a little more patience to play the sniper and sometimes Even frustratingly so. But one of the things I like about playing the sniper is the support rule aspect of spotting. And one of the things that Battlefield does very well, you can get points from your teammates' actions. As an example, if you wound a player and that player gets finished off before they're healed, you get assist points. But the sniper can spot for teammates. So it makes sense if you think about a sniper that you're going to naturally try to pick some high ground and some cover where you've got a good view of the battlefield.
0: Taking the scout role.
1: Well, exactly. So what you can do... And it's actually very satisfying is find a really good spot where you've got that view of the battlefield and just call targets for your teammates. Now you may not, if you're if you're not very twitchy at least, no. get the kills. And even if you do, you may be far enough that you're just wounding them and getting those assist points. Right. But if you spot a player and they take damage and they're killed, you're actually going to get assist points. <laughs> so you're fulfilling a couple of rules. One, you're getting points for yourself and sniping, which of course... Uh, forces the enemy to be more cautious in their advance. Yeah. But the second piece is when you call somebody out, it brings up the heads-up display on every other player so that it's very visible. Even if they're behind cover from the player that you're spotting for, they can see that red triangle or... And they know that player's right there, so they can plan their attack around it.
0: So that's actually for all players on your team, though, right? Yeah,
1: and you can spot not just players, but vehicles, helicopters, place guns, anything that's occupied um, from a really great distance. Even further than a lot of the guns that the sniper has at their arsenal can shoot.
0: Okay. Now, speaking of weapons, um, I haven't actually been able to rank up very well. Mm -hmm. So how do you get these special weapons?
1: Well, you actually are looking at a rank-based system, and that can be very frustrating for a new player. And that's maybe another advantage of playing in a support role. You're going to play in a squad with you know, four players, mm-hmm. and if you've got a good squad, they're not only communicating, either through the in-game speech or through Ventrilo or you know, TeamSpeak, yeah. something like that, But they're also going to fulfill a mix of roles. So you may find that you've got a sniper spotting for you, a medic, and an assault guy on the front line, or maybe you're rolling armor with a couple of guys. And each of the upgrades that you pick gives you different strengths and weaknesses. As an example, you can pick vehicle upgrades that would give you better range, uh, stronger shells, better armor, that sort of stuff. And if two of you are in a vehicle with two of these different advantages then you have both of those advantages for the vehicle. But shooting in the vehicle, that's not for everybody, especially (laughs) if you're used to Twitch gaming. Mm -hmm. So what I find is a really great strategy is to join a squad and look at what role is not being fulfilled, which is usually going to be something like a medic or even an assault. Mm -hmm. And one of the things Battlefield does that will help you is it allows you to spawn not just at your flag points, your captured areas, but also on a teammate. Oh, wow. So say I'm playing that sniper, and Mm -hmm. you come in as an assault. You can spawn on me, drop an ammo box, which, of course, allows me to snipe for much longer, and then run down and join the battle while I'm spotting for you and returning the favor by helping you call out kills. Wow. You score points not just for filling me up, but I'm scoring points for helping you with the kills as well. So we help each other out. Wow. And then in a rotation... If you continue to play as a team, you can look for that empty your role every time. Maybe the next time you spawn as a medic, and that box of ammo that you spawn stays until it's depleted, mm-hmm. so you could also drop a medic kit, keep the player healthy, play out if you die again, come back as an assault. So you're always changing the role to what's necessary. And sometimes, uh, you know, you're going to score more points on assists than you do in kills. And even as an experienced player, I find that happens to me quite a bit by fulfilling that role. When you get to the end, I'm looking at, oh my gosh, I've got like a 3-9 kill-death ratio. That's really terrible. But I've got, you know, 3,000, 4,000 points and might be the top player on the map.
0: Well, that is considerably different than like Call of Duty where, you know, you get points based on your kills or how you killed somebody or something like Mm -hmm. that. So it really brings a different aspect to to the game.
1: Yeah, and I think it allows you to play at a speed that, you're comfortable with. Whether you like to be sitting patiently as a sniper, whether you like to run and gun with the grenade launchers, play the vehicles, fly the helicopters. I mean, it's all there for you. I really feel like the Battlefield series felt very played out. And recently, I've been really impressed, not just with the after-game support, with the new map packs that have been coming out, but also with the advantages of things like Vietnam. Similar game, new map pack, new weapons, but it plays really with the same team aspect.
0: Wow. So I'm I'm going to assume that Battlefield 3 is going to be very similar, so I'm actually going to look forward to that.
1: Yeah. One of the things probably that I should mention, too, is if you have looked at Battlefield and not had a chance to play it through a demo or something else, it uses a really exciting engine that allows an amazing amount of destruction, especially if you have a DirectX 11 card. And one of the things, and I know we've talked about this, is the difference between DirectX 10 and DirectX 11 brings in a lot of little details that are just neat. I mean, bullet damage. <laughs> uh,
0: and that's that's all through tes- tessellation because you're able to actually increase the detail mm-hmm. of, like, bullet holes or, or holes in, the, uh, in a building or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, it even goes to the point... Say I'm sniping on the side of the hill, I found a good dark spot. Someone might shoot near me, and you can actually see that puff of dirt off the ground. It's slick. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's something just satisfying about calling down an artillery strike on a house and watching the house crumble over a team. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, that would actually be good to see. Well, and even in the single-player missions, which is what I usually play to get honed up for a multiplayer mission, Right. you know, you're hiding in a building, and if there's a rocket launcher on the other side of the building... Pretty soon, you don't have that building protecting you anymore.
1: Yeah, and you know, there is a lot of tactics and strategy just in how you use the buildings. Because like you say, you can hole up in the attic of a house, for example, and in some of the maps, and have somebody blow a hole on the side of the roof, and you're suddenly exposed. Yeah, it's
0: quite amazing. Yeah. And you know, it, it really speaks to how much or how improved the games have gotten over the years. You know, because there's multiplayer games like uh, Unreal Tournament was one of my favorite. You don't have a destructible environment in an Unreal Tournament. It's basically right. a map and you're running around in circles and you're, you're just kind of getting as many frags mm-hmm. as you can. Call of Duty or COD 4 and even Modern Warfare 2 had somewhat of that aspect where you could kind of blow things up, but right. it wasn't really, you know, you couldn't blow up the building for the most part.
1: Yeah, well, it does bring a, not only a new tactical feel to what you're doing and realism, but it actually, in a way, changes the maps because buildings that you're used to being there might not be. Mm-hmm. You can, uh, you know, put a hole in the side of a building. I mean, there have been times where I've actually grenaded the own side of my building just so that I have a nice hole to pop out of. Mm-hmm. And you just, you don't see that. I think it's really underrated.
0: Now that I know that, I'm going to go and hone up so I can get uh, a few more points in the land party.
1: Absolutely. And remember, you have to play on an online server. So guys, if you're interested and you want to play, give us a quick PM or find us in the forums. We'd love to have you friend up and come squad with us.
0: For more information on the topics in this podcast, please consult our show notes. And if you have questions on anything that we did discuss, please drop by the forums at forums.ninjalane.com. You can follow Ninja Lane on Twitter and Facebook or subscribe to our RSS feed. This has been an Ninja Lane production, copyright 2011. Thanks for joining.